If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the historical novelist Bernard Cornwell. Bernard is best known for The Last Kingdom and Sharp series, both of which have, of course, been adapted for television. He joined us to talk about Warlord, the 13th and final instalment of the Last Kingdom series, which tells of the formation of England through the eyes of Uhtred of Battenberg. BBC History Revealed production editor Kev Lotchen spoke to Bernard to find out more. Bernard, thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I feel like we should begin with the end, and it's kind of Uhtred's end. So Warlord is the 13th and final instalment in the Last Kingdom series. How does it feel bringing his tale to a conclusion after, I think it's been something like 15 years? It's been like 15 years, so it's a little bit bittersweet, because as you can imagine, when you're writing a book, it haunts you. And you know, you take the dog for a walk, and what you're really doing is thinking about what Uhtred will do next. And that's been my life for the best part of 15 years. And suddenly it's over. It's just gone. So, yeah, there's sadness because I like the man. Um, But at the same time, there's a a sort of relief in having brought his story to a conclusion. And without giving away too many spoilers, could you kind of bring us up to speed on where we are with the books? Yes. I mean, the big story behind all 13 books is the creation of England, which is a story that seems to be very little known in England. Um, I mean, I had a good history education in Britain, but I don't think I was ever really taught how England became a country. So that's what the books are about. Um, And in this book, Warlord, it leads up to the great Battle of Brunanburh, which, if you like, is the founding event of English history. You could say, with a little stretch of the imagination, that on the morning of Brunanburh, there was no country called England. It was just an idea. And that night, there was. So that's where we are, the creation of England. I'd like to uh, talk a little about Brunanburh, actually. I mean, as you said, it serves as kind of like the big battle and almost the destination um, of the books. But you've previously said this is where the series is going to end. I wonder, you tell me a bit more about that battle, but also if you always knew you were going to go there. Like, did you have this, that was the end point, it always was that point? Yes, Brunanburh was always going to be the end point, simply because that was, if you like, the big story that I was telling. And... With the Battle of Brunanburh, that story is really over. I mean, of course, there was a lot of mopping up to do and the next two or three years were very messy, but I decided that Brunanburh would be my full stop. You mentioned uh, the big story. So one thing I've heard you say many a time is there's also the little stories as well. So Uhtred is his adventure. Uhtred is the little story, yes. (laughs) I mean, if you think about it in terms of, say, Gone with the Wind, the big story is the Civil War. The little story is Can Scarlet Save Tara? Um, well, with this one, the big story is the creation of England. And the little story is the adventures of one man who is intimately mixed up in that process, which was a very long and very bloody process. Do you have a favourite little story after all the ones you've told of Uhtred now? 
I don't know. He's quite old by this point, isn't he? He's much too old. He's even older than I am, and that's saying a lot. Uh, But, I mean, people would write to me and say, can Uhtred possibly be alive at the Battle of Brunenburg? And I would write back saying, look, you've got a choice. You can have the Battle of Brunenburg without Uhtred, or you can have him with Uhtred. Which do you want? And they almost always said with. So I kept him alive. He must be around, is is he around 80 at this point? He's around 80, yes, yes. From your your kind of research, do you think a man of 80, did they ever stand in the shield walls? Um, I doubt it. Uh, But on the other hand, you know, there was Marshal Blucher at Waterloo, um, who was almost 80 years old, and he was overrun by French cavalry and trampled by their horses and survived. Um, So it wasn't unknown. And as somebody reminded me before I wrote the book, Beowulf must be very close to that age when he finally fights the dragon, Grendel's son. Um, So even the Saxons had very old heroes. So not out of the realms of possibility. Exactly. One of the bigger characters in Warlord is Ethelstan, of course, the grandson of King Alfred. And you mentioned earlier about how, when you learn about history, you heard briefly about the King Alfred story. Do you think Ethelstan is getting a bit of short shrift compared to Alfred? I think he is getting short shrift because Ethelstan is the first king of England. Um, Alfred dreamed of England. Um, It was undoubtedly an ambition of his, but he died 38 years before that dream came true. Um, Ethelstan is the man who makes it come true. And I think he deserves to be better remembered. Um, he seems to have been completely forgotten, rather like the battle that he won. And on, on that battle as well, I was um, reading one of the historical notes in Warlord, and you actually went out with uh, the Wirral Archaeological Society, was it, to try and... Yes, it's, there's been huge controversy for years about where the Battle of Brunenburg actually took place. And, I mean, there are all sorts of candidates, a lot of them on the East Coast in Yorkshire, even County Durham, Some people think it's southern Scotland. I got an email only today saying that somebody got some kind of proof that it took place in southern Scotland. But the west coast of England has always been the most likely place. And about two years ago, Wirral Archaeology, which is a superb group of mostly amateur archaeologists, emailed me and said, we think we found it. And I'm pretty sure they have. They've found hundreds of artifacts on that field, I mean, broken weapons. Um, they found grave pits, and they're doing an amazing job of excavating what I'm quite sure is the battle site of Brunberg. Is there something about that site that makes it seem more like it's the obvious site? Well, if you think that the army that fought Ethelstan at Brunenburg was composed, very, maybe half composed, of Irish Norsemen, um, the Hibernian Norse, Vikings, And they came to the battle in a fleet. I mean, one of the chronicles said there were 715 ships in the fleet, which I don't believe for a moment. But I think what that means is there were a lot of ships. Well, if you're taking a large army to fight in England, you don't really want to sail halfway around Britain. You're going to lose a lot of those ships, either going around Scotland or going around through the English Channel. You're going to take the shortest route. So it makes much more sense that, in fact, Anlaf brought his fleet from Dublin and landed on the east coast, somewhere close to the Wirral. And Anlaf was allied with the Scots in this battle? With the Scots, yes. It was a a combination of Scots and Irish Norse. One other character who I wanted to talk about a little bit was um, Egil, Egil Skallagrimson, whom 
I, I think I've got this right. I didn't realise this was the same ego of the saga tradition. It is, yes. Um, I wonder if we could talk about where his story intersects with that of England and how he came into it. Well, in Egil's saga, he says that he fought for Athelstan at Brunenburg. Um, and I just thought, well, that's very weird. I mean, here we have a Viking chieftain, and a, quite a famous Viking chieftain, who appears to be fighting on the wrong side. Um, much like Uhtred. <laughs> much like Uhtred. So I, I just thought it would be fun to actually incorporate him in the novels. Remember, this is all part of the little story, so it's all made up. I mean, this is fiction. Um, although, in fact, Egil Skallagrimason was there, and his brother, Thorolf, died at Brunenburg. It's something I want to come back to there. But before I do, I mean, I've just mentioned Ethelstan and Egil. I just wondered as well, from your point of view, of all the kind of the real-life characters who have trodden in and out of these pages, was there any whose like story really fascinated you? Oh, I wish I could have explored them a bit more, but didn't quite fit in. Well, I think probably of all the real characters, Alfred is the most intriguing um, and he's not a man I think that I liked very much, and Uhtred certainly doesn't like him, but admires him. And I think Alfred is utterly admirable, and perhaps we need to know more about him. I mean, there are a number of very good books about Alfred, uh, but he's still, you know, when most of us emerge from a British education, the only thing we really know is that he was a very bad cake maker. And this seems to be a bit sad, because he really was an extraordinary and intelligent and effective king. Even that after thinking that Ethelstan is getting short shrift, it's Alfred. I think they all are, yes. I mean, his son Edward gets short shrift. I mean, his daughter mm. Ethelflaed certainly gets short shrift, and Ethelstan is part of that. The thing we touched on very briefly a minute ago, um, which I come back to, is it was about a, his, being a historical novelist uh, generally, and you said that this was all storytelling, and I wondered you know, how you balance good storytelling with the constraints of what actually happens? Or conversely, how do you deal with a gap in a historical record? Well, I love gaps in the historical record because it just means I make them up. Um, I mean, it's just, I always tell people, look, I'm not an historian, I'm a storyteller. Mm. And in the end, the story must take precedence. So if the history is inconvenient, I tend to change the history. But I do like to admit that fault in a historical note at the end of the book and say to people, look, this, this really didn't happen, or we don't know if this happened. But luckily, history is full of gaps, especially the history in the 9th and 10th centuries. And each of those gaps is an opportunity for an historical novelist. Given there's like this kind of trope that historical fiction is like a gateway into historical non-fiction, is, yes. there, is there ever a duty to the history in that sense? Where, or do yes, you- there's a duty. You can't totally distort it, and it, you have to make it as authentic as possible. But really, you're, I think it is a gateway. I mean, historical fiction was my gateway into, if you like, real history. Hmm. So I am aware of that. Um, and I know that for other, some of my readers have found that way. I mean, I was very flattered once when I got a very nice letter from a British Army officer who claimed he would never have got through his exams at Sandhurst without the Sharp books. Um, so I thought, okay. I like that. Did he tell you what about the books it was? I have no idea. No, that was all he said. But. <laughs> when, you're, when you're kind of approaching uh, a book like this, like how much time do you spend researching? I mean, is it all um, 
kind of literary research or how much do you go out and visit the places? And I mean, we've talked about Wirral Archaeological Society really briefly. Well, it's nice to visit. It's, it's almost essential to visit the places if you can. And I visited virtually the site of everything where my books were set. It's more difficult, obviously, with the Saxons because mm. most of those places have been changed so much. Uh, but with this book, yes, I spent a lot of time in the Wirral and walking the battlefield. Um, and I don't... I think, yes, it is... It is necessary to visit. It, it's... But even so, I tend to change the battlefields, as it were, to make them more accessible to the reader. If you're describing a battle, before it even begins, the reader has to know the geographical setup. And that's usually where the simplification comes in. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And after the Battle of Neville's Cross, for instance, when the Scottish king was captured, he was immediately put in Bebenburg, because even though it's very close to Scotland, they knew damn well that they weren't going to be able to get him out. It, it is a real fortress up on this great hump of rock beside the sea. I mean, from your point of view, how do you approach these battle sequences, which are such a huge part of your books, and how you approach them to keep them interesting, I suppose? When... I don't have no idea. Um, um, I mean, I think I think of it almost in cinematic terms, mm. that you have a sort of bird's eye view, and you have the real close-ups, and you keep cutting between the two. I mean, it's very important that the reader knows what's going on because battles are, by their nature, extraordinarily confusing. I mean, Sharp at Waterloo would hardly have seen more than 20 or 30 yards through the musket smoke. Um, so much of what he guesses is going on is based on what he can hear rather than what he can see. And the same is true of Uhtred at Brunenburg. I mean, he's in a shield wall, and I doubt that his real... He can't really concentrate on much except what's happening within arm's length because if he does he's going to die so my job is to in fact act as a god and say well this is what's happening um, and this is how Uhtred's behavior affects that much bigger picture so you keep cutting through wide angle lens and real close-up lens did you i noticed um it's just in the book it is Uhtred's he's definitely a lot older in the sense of there's lots of references to his uh, his eyesight and yes. <laughs> getting worse. I just think about when you're saying about he's in the shield wall. Like, does it is it was it difficult kind of aging him as when you're writing his process? No, because I'm that old too. <laughs> <laughs> what didn't make it in in terms of historical elements, battles, characters? Was there anyone who fell to the cutting room floor? We had to leave out quite a lot of battles. Mm. Um, and, I mean, each book, in a sense, is a separate adventure story. And it's nice when you can blend that adventure in with the real events. But uh, I was often tempted to do more on the northern frontier of Mercia. But the book simply, w it would, I think it would have ended up the books being too much alike. So I had to choose something else. So all sorts of history got left out. Were we ever at risk of a 14th book then? I don't think you're at risk of forcing the book because I really think he's finished. I mean, he deserves to retire to his fortress and live out what few years are left in peace. So that's what I'll do for him. I noticed in the front of the book, the dedication, it's to Alexander Draymond, who, of course, plays Uhtred in the 
Netflix television series. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on the TV adaptation? Are you enjoying I it? I love them. Yeah, I'm absolutely loving it. I mean, I'm, I come to them as a viewer. And uh, I didn't want to be involved, although they very kindly asked me to appear in a cameo in the third series. And I was murdered by Uhtred, which was, I suppose, a privilege. Um, <laughs> and, but I'm not involved, so I don't know what they're doing. And I do know, because I worked in television long enough, that yes. they have very different constraints to the ones I have. Um, I mean, if I feel a book is flagging, I can just invent a Viking invasion and they can't because Viking invasions cost a lot of money. Um, and I think they're doing a great job and I love what Alexander is doing. Um, I'm looking forward to the next series, which they start filming very soon. Yes, I hear. Um, now that, you know, your book series has come to an end, do you have any temptation to have a role in a television series in the creative sense? I wouldn't mind a chance to kill Uhtred, but... <laughs> You'd make a second cameo. Yes. What, what went wrong for you the first time? Um, well, actually, they said, would, would I mind being killed? And I said, no, it'd be a privilege. And they gave me hair extensions down to my waist and a wooden axe. <laughs> but it was huge fun. I mean, we went over and spent a, a week in Hungary where they filmed it. Um, I'd quite like to be one of my evil bishops, but I don't think they're going to offer it. Uhtred, of course, in The Lost Kingdom is a fictional character, but it is based on, well, there is an Uhtred in your family tree, as so as I understand. And I wonder if you could tell us... There are two or three. Could you tell us a bit about them? Well, we know very little about them. Um, I only learned about them when I was in my 50s, and I met my birth father for the very first time. And he was a Canadian. Um, his family had emigrated from England in the 19th century. And his surname was Outred, which is very close to Outred. And I think on our second time we met, he showed me a family tree. And to my astonishment, I saw that it went all the way back. Well, it actually went all the way back to Odin, the god. Um, but on the way, it passed through Ida the Flamebearer, who was the angle who captured Bamburgh, what is now Bamburgh Castle, and then to three or four lords of Bebenberg who were called Outred. And I thought, that's fascinating, because how did these people who were, I call them Saxons, they're Angles, hold on to their land through the whole Viking occupation of Northumbria? Because Northumbria was a Viking kingdom for a long time. And that became my little story. Um, so, yes, I have a right to, I mean, I can claim Uhtred as a, an ancestor, um, which I rather like. How, was it easy to track those Uhtreds through the records? Because they're all, are they all Uhtred sons of Uhtred? Uh, three or four of them were, yes, but that became the first line of the first <laughs> book and it stuck. Um, I am Uhtred, son of Uhtred. And forevermore. And in fact, I mean, the, the real Uhtred who I'm basing it on did not live as long as the one I've written, as you can imagine. Um, but he did hold on to, to Bebenberg, um, which was quite a feat. And do you know how that real Uhtred met his end? No, I imagine he died of old age. Um, I think most of them did. Um, the last Uhtred who lost the um, fortress, uh, he lost it in 1016 through treachery, the Earl Godwin and King Canute. And uh, about five years ago, I was in the castle and I met the present owner, who's an extremely charming and nice man. 
And I pointed out to him that the castle had been stolen from us by treachery. And if there was any honesty, any honor left in the world, and he interrupted me and said, let me show you the heating bills. So I said, you can keep it. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't actually been to Banborough Castle. Is it as formidable? Yes, it's utterly formidable. Um, Even though, of course, what we see today is mostly a 19th century restoration. Uh, But... You can just tell by looking at it that this thing is a beast, and a real beast. And after the Battle of Neville's Cross, for instance, when the Scottish king was captured, he was immediately put in Bebenburg, because even though it's very close to Scotland, they knew damn well that they weren't going to be able to get him out. Um, it, It is a real fortress up on this great hump of rock beside the sea, and beautiful. It would be remiss of me if I didn't ask. I mean, you said Uhtred is probably going to enjoy his retirement. So he is, indeed. what comes next? <laughs> well, I've always wanted to write a more sharp books. I mean, so I'm right in the middle of the first chapter of a brand new sharp book at the moment. Oh, okay. Um, and I suspect there might be at least another one or two after that. But that's as far as I know. Are you able to tell us anything about when this new shop book is set? Yes, it takes place immediately after Waterloo, um, where there was enough sort of mischief going on for a few weeks that will keep Sharp busy. Are Napoleonic Wars, are they your kind of preferred era of history? I mean, if I'm correct in thinking that's the subject of your only non-fiction history book. Was Waterloo? Yes. Yes. Because that's such an extraordinary and an amazing story. And every time I read about Waterloo, the story still grips. I mean, right up until that evening, you can't really tell who's going to win. Um, So it's an extraordinarily dramatic story. And it was the only nonfiction book I ever wanted to write. And it is the only nonfiction book I ever will write. Um, I don't know what my favourite period is because I usually say whatever period I'm writing about. So right at the moment, it's 1815. But um, if I'm writing a, a book about almost anything, any other period, that period becomes my favourite. I mean, I loved writing about the Saxons, just loved it. Um, and I enjoyed Fools and Mortals, which was set in Tudor, England. And I think that's the only book I'll probably write set in the Tudor period. Is it quite difficult jumping back into uh, Napoleon here after, you know, so long in the Saxon world? Or is it, is it like a second home to you now almost in your mind? Yes, it is. I mean, the extraordinary thing is the moment you begin writing sharp, he sort of springs fully armed back into your head, grumbling at you. So, no, sharp makes it quite easy. I'm not saying it's easy to write, but it's quite easy to, to see him and hear his voice. And I only ever hear Sean Bean's voice in my head. Um, that's interesting because i remember reading that you had there was a thing with um sean bean and his hair color and sharp and how you kind of sharp never had black hair again because sean bean i i admired sean from the very first it was some of some of the viewers who said hey he's supposed to have black hair Mm. i mean that to me just seems nonsensical you're getting a brilliant sharp does it matter what color his hair is um so no i i I remember the first time I saw Sean on screen as Sharp and thought, oh my God, he's got it. Did you ever have that feeling with Alexander Draymond when you looked at him and then you thought about Uhtred and was there any kind of influence that way? 
Yes, I mean, I, I again, I adore what Alexander is doing, but as I said to him the other day, the problem is I'm writing Uhtred as an old man and you're, I guess, still in your 30s. Um, so I can't say that I see Alexander in my head when I was writing Uhtred simply because he's too young. But I think he makes a great Uhtred. Do you, does he know, does Alexander know that how old he's going to have to be to, like, yeah, he's going to have knows, to be made yes. up to be at the end? <laughs> yes. I'm not sure he's looking forward to it, but... <laughs> Um, just looking a bit further ahead to the future, I mean, are there any other periods you would like to delve into? I mean, is there another series bubbling away? Oh, my God, I'm already in my late 70s. I mean, <laughs> um, I, I think it's too late to start another series, but I'm not going to stop writing. And then because the problem is you write a book and, and people say, can we hear more, more about that character? So I may just start a new series by mistake. <laughs> and just hope I live long enough like Uhtred to finish it. Um, I think I'll round off with one final question, which is Sharp and Uhtred, if they were fighting each other, who would win that battle of wits? Oh, Sharp, because he's got a rifle. <laughs> Sharp's no fool. That was Bernard Cornwell. Warlord, which is the final book in Bernard's The Last Kingdom series is out now, published by HarperCollins. You can also read more about the real history behind the Netflix adaptation of the novels online at historyextra.com forward slash the hyphen last hyphen kingdom. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with another lecture from our History Weekend events. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.